Epilogue Since the original version of this essay was first published in April 2000, I have become convinced that the subject with which it deals is at the heart of an issue of much greater importance, namely the need for further reformation of the Church. The fossilization of the Church's social life into a regime of set rituals, controlled and performed by a professional priesthood, was a major declension of the Church from the pattern set by the doctrine and example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his earthly ministry and the practice of the Apostolic Church. This declension has had a serious impact on the mission of the Church. Nor is it a problem that is confined to the Episcopal Churches. Protestant Churches have also suffered from the corrupting effects of the same kind of ideology. The differences between Roman Catholic and Protestant Churches with regard to this particular issue have often boiled down to little more than terminology and fancy dress. As a social order, the Church did not develop under this regime in a natural, that is, biblically informed way. After the Apostolic Age, those aspects of the life of the Church as a social order that survived and flourished eventually metamorphosed into monastic orders under the influence of spiritual ideals that were alien to the Christian faith as understood in terms of a biblical worldview. According to R. L. Cole, the most potent of the forces antagonistic to the agape arose, however, within the Church itself. The 4th and 5th centuries were the age of the monastic ideal in the Church. It began in the East, but speedily, under Jerome's example principally, found firm footing in Western Christendom. There is no doubt that the monastic spirit was unfavourable to the agape. The notion propagated was that if there were to be common meals, they should be held inside the bounds of the inner brotherhood of monks. If charity was to be controlled and administered, who could do so like those who had renounced the world and its gains? It is much more than a coincidence that the rise of monasticism and the fall of the agape synchronise. There is a causal link between the two facts. We have also to remember that the same period as saw the rise of monasticism saw also the birth of a deep interest into the ritual of the church. The earliest of the great cathedrals were being built, service books were being produced, and a new sense of fitness and arrangement in public worship was developing. It was only to be expected that the people would soon get to recognise the incongruity between the agape and ceremonial worship. The archaic simplicity of the love feast was irreconcilable with the solemn splendour and the stately offices of a Gothic or Byzantine building. This had a detrimental effect on the wider church, since, as Gerhard Olhorn pointed out, it had been on the agape feasts especially that the family-like unity of the church had been impressed. This is not to condemn the life and work of the monasteries completely. It is widely acknowledged that the monasteries preserved learning and by so doing contributed significantly to the development of Western civilization. But they also preserved much of the life of the church as a social order. Yet they did so in a corrupt form that denied the basic God-given aspect of human nature, sexuality, and that therefore denied the divinely ordained life of the family as the basic unit of Christian social order. The medieval church rejected the family as the basic unit of the Christian social order and replaced it with the monasteries. The secular church then became a mere cult controlled by the official priesthood, which maintained its power by means that directly conflicted with the command of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Matthew 20, 25-28 This had a significant impact on how the church lived as the wider family of God. The result was that the church came to function as a principality 
rather than as a nation, 1 Peter 2.9. Again, this is not to say that the church did not have a decisive and ameliorative effect on the development of Western civilization. Much good can be found in the influence of the medieval church on society, but it does not mean that this influence fell far short of what it should have been and must be in the future if the Great Commission is to be fulfilled. Of course, the Reformation brought a much-needed correction to many of the abuses of the medieval church, but it did not go nearly far enough and naturally retained much from the church's medieval past. At the Reformation, the church took a great step forward but she also stepped backwards in some respects. The Reformed churches abandoned the monasteries, and with good reason, but they failed to realise the potential of the life of the church as a social order, which had been preserved, albeit in an inadequate and corrupted form, in the monasteries. For example, the welfare role of the medieval church, which was largely concentrated in the monasteries, was neglected by the Reformed churches, not entirely, but sufficiently enough to create a vacuum that the modern, idolatrous, secular state has in our own age filled, and it was neglected largely because the importance of the life of the church as a social order was not sufficiently understood and prioritised by the heirs of the Reformation. Nor did the Reformed churches abandon centralised bureaucratic control of the church by a professional clergy that remained focused, for the most part, on prioritising the church's ritualised cultic activities as the essence of the life of the church. The consequence of this historical development is that the church today has reached an impasse and it has been impossible and will remain impossible for the church to overcome this impasse without a willingness to embrace changes of the most profound and far-reaching kind. The modern church in Britain had two official decades of evangelism in the second half of the 20th century, yet the church still continues to decline. And she does so because she does not understand her mission. The gospel she preaches is a truncated gospel, devoid of the vision necessary to breach the impasse, which can only be overcome by a recognition and acceptance of the truth that the church is meant to be a social order, and not only a social order, but the true social order, the true society, that must grow until it displaces and then replaces the false and idolatrous social orders of men. For this to happen, the church must embrace a new reformation, that will clear away the accretions of false doctrine and practice that continue to vitiate her life as a social order and impede her mission to the world. Only by doing this shall the church be able to overcome the world and flourish and, as a consequence, disciple the nations to Christ. If the need for this reformation is not accepted and embraced, the church will face a difficult and dark road ahead of her. The church today faces a choice, just as the ancient Hebrews faced a choice after the exodus from Egypt, she can go forward into the place that God has prepared for her, or she can spend a generation, or possibly longer, in the wilderness. The time for making this choice is passing quickly. Unless she acts soon, the decision will be made for her. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life, and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Deuteronomy 30, 19 and 20.